0: I will say my one absolute pet peeve, a lemon is not a unit of measure. You know, I do not like calling for uh, the juice of one lemon or something like that. That is not a volume. Um, Go to the grocery store and look at two lemons and make sense of that with with yourself. I, I always try to provide as many pieces of information as possible.
1: This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. In our final episode, in a week-long tribute to Savor, we speak with the magazine's current editor and CEO, Kat Craddock. Kat has a long history of the publication, including serving various roles in the test kitchen. Earlier this year, she was able to buy the publication full stop, and is currently in the process of bringing back a print edition. We were so happy to have Kat in the studio to talk about the next generation of Savor and some of the stories she is most looking forward to working on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Kat Craddock, this is Taste. How are you doing?
0: I'm great, Matt. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm really excited to talk to you. We're having uh, a, a week of, of, of Savor. How do you pronounce it? Savor. So, like, we've, we've debated this off mic for a long time, and um, we've had a week of, of, of coverage, and I just wanted to talk to you about the future. Um, let's just get into it. When did you realize you could... You could acquire this publication, this legendary publication that we've established that we all love so much, that you could acquire it as a sole owner. You're the editor in chief and CEO. When did you realize this?
0: Uh, I mean, well, I've been with the brand for eight years and was a part of it the last time we were acquired, uh, which was the middle of the pandemic a couple of years ago. Um, and at the time, I was the only one of only two people that came along with the brand. And I saw a lot of the moving parts of how, um, how a transaction like that happened. And it really got me starting to think about it a little bit then. Um, and, you know, last year, there were some changes with the company. And I, I mentioned to Recurrent CEO, that, you know, our former parent company, that I might be interested. And when he didn't Laugh me out of the room. That was, you know, kind of encouraging that that it might be possible. And it just kind of started thinking about what might go into that. Um, come January, I, you know, an old friend of mine mentioned that he might be interested in, in backing an effort to break it out. So when I went back to the recurrent team and, and proposed it and made an offer. And really, after that, everything moved pretty quickly. I I don't know that I really knew it was possible until the ink was dry, honestly. It was, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: you never know until that, that, that contract is signed, right? Yes, yeah. So is Recurrent uh, a media company? Is it p- private equity? I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the previous owner of your publication.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a digital media company. Um, they, you know, they had, they also own Bob Vila and some military publications. And back when we were acquired from Bonnier, we were acquired with a few other brands. Um, they were expanding their portfolio. So we were acquired with uh, popular science field and stream, outdoor life, uh, and popular photo as well. So, mm. so they kind of purchased us as a package, and since then have have added more brands to their portfolio as well, almost exclusively in the digital space.
1: But you knew that this brand could operate independently, and you reference a, a partner. Uh, you have you have a single um, owner, operator, partner in it. Um, now, when did you realize that it could actually work as a business? Because as we've established media and particularly food media is very challenged and distressed and but you did not do not see that you're going forward with this brand and you see a a path
0: yeah i mean i i came up in restaurants and small businesses and i'm used to kind of having to be scrappy and you know cutting corners where you can and spending where you have to and you know i'm used to to that sort of hustle um i think that it, good quality food and travel content is always going to be expensive to produce, and that isn't going to change, and it's only going to get more expensive. But I think that the way to make something like this work um, is as an independent brand, where you're not going to have a bunch of overhead and shared services that aren't being used, mm-hmm. and you know, spending where you need to be spending, and not spending on things that you know, that we don't need.
1: Yeah. So it's like managing costs. I'm hearing a lot of that, but also just growth, like getting brands to, to work with you, um, getting subscribers to work with you. So generally speaking, how do you keep the lights on, so to speak, for like 5, 10, 15 years in the future? Because I know that's that's the plan. This isn't a, a short term um, model. How do, how do you do that in this very unique situation?
0: Uh, well, we're a couple months in, so we are figuring that out on Great. some level. But and there are a lot of different revenue streams for us, and I think really just focusing on one or two, particularly one or two tech-based revenue streams, when tech is changing constantly and overnight, Google or Amazon can change the way they do business, and you know a, a whole a whole gold mine could totally dry up for us. Yeah. Um, it's you know we need to be paying attention to. Every single one of those and it's direct sold campaigns, which honestly are pretty robust for us right now. It is programmatic. It is SEO, but also, you know. We don't want to be an affiliate machine, but affiliate revenue is important. Uh, licensing is important. Um, we're looking to get back into in-person events again, and I think just just optimizing every one of those streams rather than just focusing on one at the expense of everything, including brand, is how we need to. Oh my we gosh. Need to Thrive.
1: Oh my gosh, you're busy. That, that's that's really <laughs> smart, and I fully agree. Taste is operating in a similar way, and I feel like when you when you have to uh, focus on multiple streams, um, it can be a lot. A lot of work, right, and a lot of uh, a lot of balls in the air. Are you bullish on one of the particular streams? Do you think like offline events is, is really strong? Do you think, I mean, licensing like New York Mag yesterday like launched this ma- amazing store with like brand, and your brand is as good as any.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, at this point, we have a really great licensed cookware company and that's doing well for us and it's certainly growing. Um, I would love to get to a point where there is a sever store and we've got a lot of different products available. That is going to take a while to get to that that point. Um, But, I mean, we make great sponsored content and, you know, we have some repeat business that comes back to us every year. And, you know, I think that it's it's worth growing that and, um, you know. Nurturing those sort of relationships with brands that are a good fit for us over time. Um.
1: <laughs> I love it, and and we're going to get into your history and, and like some some food stuff. I mean, we're, we're this is a little more like media version of this of this show, but I think it was important to establish the future of this brand and that we care again care so deeply about. Um, I have to ask you about print. I mean, it was a print publication from The Jump, and Dorothy referred to that at the beginning of this week, um, about the history of the of the publication and the founding. Um, what's the print, broadly speaking, what's the print future for your publication?
0: It's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I love Sever as a print product. I grew up reading it. I think a lot of chefs and other people in the industry grew up reading it, and it, I firmly believe that, you know, the the... The food ecosystem we all live in now is largely shaped by you know what Savour was doing in the '90s and the early 2000s, um, all, you know, really all the way up until um, when Recurrent folded um, the media publication um, or the print the print publication. version of it. Yeah, yeah which, which was a
1: sad day for everyone in, in media, and I'm sure you, in particular, it hit you hard. You've been there for eight years, and there's no more print Savour. I mean, whoa.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we continued to produce some licensed SIPs. We put out a re-edition of the Severny Classics cookbook. Um, So we didn't totally stop in the print space. Um, But yeah, it stopped being a print magazine. Um, And I know everybody would like to see it come back. I would love to see it come back. And we're exploring what that's going to look like for sure.
1: Let's talk about uh, back to your first interaction with Savor as a a magazine. Take me back to when you first realized Savor was there as a magazine and how different it was from what was actually out there.
0: Um, I mean – I was in middle school, early high school, probably when it came out. And I'm sure my mother subscribed, if, if not from ep- from season from season one, from, from issue <laughs> one yeah. um, from very early on. And it was always around. And I grew up reading it and was, you know, just starting to cook a lot on my own and cooking for myself and my family um, and. There are certainly recipes that I remember cutting out or saving, you know, when I was in high school that I brought with me to college and I made for my friends. And, you know, I remember reading a lot of those kind of you know, um, those beautiful sweeping transportive uh, travel features. And it really mm-hmm. kind of made the world seem a lot more accessible and attainable. And yeah. So, I mean, I remember when I was uh, probably 16 or 17, there was this really pretty owed to the tomato in some summer issue. And, you know, up until that point, tomatoes were this crappy thing on a salad bar or on a yeah. burger. And I never really thought of them as anything worth, you know, paying attention to. And around that same time, my grandfather started bringing bowls of beefsteak tomatoes from his garden that he had grown. Um, and all summer, you know, I, I had read this article and every single day I was eating, you know, two or three whole beefsteak tomatoes. <laughs> and I, I went back and I read the story again recently and it, it was this writer, John Thorne, and it kind of seemed like between the two of them, John Thorne and my grandpa taught me like what a tomato was supposed to taste like and still really um, uh, important for me. And every summer, you know, I kind of revisit that experience again. And I, I don't think that any other food publication, at least that I knew of back then, you know, was really writing that kind of um, you know, producing that kind of content.
1: Are we talking like early 2000s here? Mid-90s? When 98,
0: 99. Yeah,
1: yeah, like around there. And thanks for that memory, Kat. I mean, I feel like I, we all have our interactions with um with Savor in a similar way. I mean, for me, it's Savor 100s. And just like picking up those issues. And even like early on, before food media was really online, it felt like it was a, like, kind of like locked away in print. And, and it would always be like, wow, there's this world out there that I have not heard about. And like, it's not celebrity-driven it's not recipe-driven. It's people-driven. Certainly, it's a North Star for taste. You know, what Savour meant, like Dorothy's era, James Oslin's era, and then your era going forward, it really means a lot.
0: I love those Savoir 100s, right? It was like the first food listicle. I totally <laughs> and, agree. Uh, I Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how to revive that franchise specifically. And, it, it, you know, is it is it an SIP? Is it something that lives online? Is it an event series or an award series mm-hmm. or something? But I I I agree with you. And I think a lot of people love those and really look forward to them every year.
1: I'd say like all of the above. I feel like you could activate that online, offline at an event. You could definitely do a big package in digital. And then I would love to see the print version of The 100 come back.
0: Yeah, so would I. I mean, it's,
1: <laughs> it's exciting. And let me ask you, Kat, you were there for eight years. So let's let's hear about your journey at the publication. How did you arrive um, we'll get to your professional career before you worked in food editorial, but how did you arrive at Savor and how did you kind of work through multiple owners, multiple editor in chiefs? I mean, it, it was quite the the journey. I always knew you were there and I was always just really respected what you were doing, but it was a lot of change that you witnessed at this publication.
0: There was. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a crash course and in- the media industry, really. Um, I got there. I had been doing a little bit of freelance uh, recipe testing and stuff on the side. I'd been working in restaurants. Um, knew I didn't want to own my own restaurant in New York City, and <laughs> you know was kind of thinking about what what the next steps were going to be. I have an English de- degree. Had thought that I, you know, might want to be in food media at some point. Test Kitchen seemed like a a natural way in. Um, I emailed Amanda Hesser-Cold at Food52 and asked if if they needed any help over there and, you know, had been talking with her and came in and worked a couple days there. Um, But they didn't they didn't really need somebody. So she put me in touch with Adam Sachs um, and Faraday Sadigan. At, at Sever, uh, Adam Sachs, the editor in chief at the time. And they let me come in on my days off from working in the restaurant. And I helped out in the test kitchen, helped out at events, basically anywhere that that I could be useful. Um, I tried to be there for it. Uh, and then, you know, as things shifted and more opportunities came up, I started dialing back my my restaurant work and just working more and more with Sever and until they couldn't get rid of me, I guess. Right, then you became
1: like a permanent fixture in the masthead. You ran culinary at some point. I mean, Mm -hmm. what else were you doing there? I mean, you you rose through the ranks.
0: Yeah, I was the test kitchen director. I was the food editor. Um, When Recurrent purchased us, I became the executive editor and then the editorial director. Um, Oh my gosh, But yeah, I mean, all along it was just kind of, you know, staff, uh, Swiss army knife. (laughs) So I'm like, you know, a little bit of everything and it was working across departments
1: all along so what kept you there i mean i think I, I emailed you at some point was like hey do you want to like come over and start working at taste in some way and i think you were like oh my poli- gosh. <laughs> you were politely like and Talia at punch I know it had been in touch with you too and like like what kept you there because i know that there was probably many people who wanted you on their staff but you stayed you stayed for a long time and you stayed through this you know o- these multiple owners and and this this kind of like in between era what kept you there
0: yeah, I mean, with all the change that was going on every now and then, I'd kind of explore other options. But really, I SFR was the gold standard. That was the food magazine I grew up reading, you know, and um, there are, you know, quirks of all sorts of businesses and corporate life. And yes, it was very um, uh, tenuous. You know, and you never knew how if it was going to be there the next day or not. But I, I grew up in like I, I came up in restaurants anyway. And you never know if the door is going to be locked <laughs> when you show up to your restaurant job. Um, so I. I love it. And I mean, I, I want to be there and I want to make sure that it, it survives as long as it possibly can. And um, yeah, so I had no intention of leaving once I got there.
1: Amazing uh, to hear that. Was there a last day in the office at that 32nd Street location, your office, iconic office? And I think many of our listeners um, possibly were there for events for years. There were many events. It's for um, on 32nd Street in Koreatown. Um, I think I've spent time in the office with uh, like with Adam and with James and and just it was a really, really cool office.
0: Yeah, it was a great space. Right, I, yeah. I miss it a lot. I think um I think Bonza has that test kitchen now. To, Stop. Um, that, I heard a rumor that wait, I need quote. to reach
1: out to the yeah. <laughs> Bonza boys and see if we could get up there and, uh, and hang out.
0: Yeah, it's an unbelievable space. Um, when Recurrent purchased us, it was the middle of the pandemic. Everybody was getting rid of their New York City office space. Um, it's the center of the universe there, right? I mean, it's it's mm. the middle of Midtown. I'm sure it was unbelievably expensive. Um, and yeah, I mean, as it was changing hands, they just when they purchased the brand, they didn't they didn't bring the test kitchen along with them. Um, it took a long time to clear out the props and the oh culinary gosh. library. Um, we ended up donating the culinary library to the school for food and finance. Um, all of the props have been moved around the state a few times. Um, but we huh. we, we hold we, we edited that collection down a bit. But I mean, I, I do consider the silver prop collection to be one of our, our most valuable assets, and I really don't want to lose that. Um. It was a bummer to lose the space, absolutely. Um, but and we we pivoted to remote testing mm-hmm. very quickly. And I think that we, you know, when I talk about reviving events in some capacity, I, I am very inspired by those supper suppers. And I think that kind of figuring out a way to bring that on the road, whether it's a whether it is a supper series or supper salons or ho- however we're yeah. going to reimagine that, I do want to get back to being able to entertain. Um, together with with people in the industry that we're excited about.
1: Yeah, it was really, those were special events. I mean, was there like a la- literally a last day when you shut off the lights that you just walked out and went down the elevator to 32nd?
0: Yeah, I, I lived in Chelsea at the time. So through the pandemic, before they got rid of the space, I would, in the middle of the pandemic when everything was locked down and there was no reason to leave your apartment except to get some exercise, I would walk up there once a week and water the plants and, you know, take something weird out of the freezer home. (laughs) Um, But, uh, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I don't know that I remember the exact last day because it was this weird, slow trickle out of there at that
1: point. Yeah. Special space. Um, Let's go back to your professional career before you joined Savore. You uh, attended culinary school in Chicago and you worked there. You ended up in New York and you worked at Per Se and, and were doing overnight bread baking. Let's talk about that for the for for. Bit the group, right? You were doing overnight. What does that mean, overnight bread baking?
0: Yeah, I would uh, – when I moved to the city, I lived in Bushwick for the first six months. And I would take the train in at like 10 o'clock at night to start wow. my shift um, and be there to make – you know, get the bread started for service for the following day. Um, we started the Viennoiserie doughs and everything like that for uh, Bouchon, both the, both the Time Warner Center and the Rockefeller Center Bouchon. And yeah, so the first six months or so with uh, TKRG, I was doing the overnight shift and then they kindly moved me to a to a 4 a.m. shift oh, after that. So it was gracious a little them. more civilized. Yeah.
1: Wow. So you're you're baking breads for Bouchons and then for Per Se as well?
0: Bouchon Per Se, a couple other wholesale customers, but but most of the work went into the bread service for Per Se.
1: What's it like working in the Keller restaurant group? I mean, what, what's the culture like there?
0: It's intense. It's very detail focused. I yeah. think that you know probably made me a better editor in the end. You know?
1: Sure.
0: Um, and a better recipe tester. Uh, my hiring manager there was James Isle and we clicked right away. Um, he's basically my big brother. We both grew up in New York or uh, New England mill towns, and yeah, we're still very good friends. And I loved working with him and his team, and I learned a lot. And then when he moved, um, I was with TKRG for two years. He left um, shortly before. I did uh, to open Lafayette, and he brought me with him as his sous chef at, yep. at the, um, in the bread department at Lafayette.
1: Lafayette, um, Andrew Carmelini's, you know, giant, um, colossal, uh, important restaurant on Lafayette Street downtown New York. And you ended up uh, working there for 40 years. Uh, what's that like? What's, what's, what's it like? Because, you know, you walk into Lafayette and, like, the pastry case is what you see. is like, the first thing you see. Super important to work in that department in that restaurant.
0: Yeah um the the was it the supreme wasn't there yet at that time okay. so it, that that's more of a recent innovation <laughs> but uh I was primarily I was doing a lot of viennoiserie. I still kind of missed that part of the pastry world. So James was happy to let me stay involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing all of the bread for service for Lafayette, all of the bread for retail. Uh, most of the viennoiserie was on the bread side. Some of it was kind of divvied up into pa- into the pastry department. And then we were producing all of the bread for all of Andrew Carmelini's restaurants then. So the Dutch and La Conda Verde. We were sending burger buns over to Joe's Pub. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, you know, it's... It was a lot of production, um, but a f- super fun team. Um, I did not leave that job because I didn't like that job. Um, I kind of <laughs> eased out of it slowly because I wanted to shift into a different team. Yeah,
1: industry. you were working a couple of days at Savora, as you just said, and, and you ended up getting there. Uh, we'll get to that pivot, but like, let's talk about vinoiserie. You know, what makes a good croissant and what makes a bad croissant? I feel like you can really say this quickly.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are a lot of bad croissants out there, right?
1: <laughs> it's challenging. It's I- such a hard thing to do.
0: It is. First of all, there's no reason to make a croissant at home. Um, we have, Thank you. Yeah, we have provided recipes for croissants because people want to give it a shot, but it is so much easier to do it with professional equipment and a in a dough sheeter and um, a proof box and a conve- you know, convection oven. Um, so it's support your local bakery, buy your croissants. I agree. It's like making
1: <laughs> your own wedding engagement ring. Yes, you know, it's don't like do it. <laughs> yeah, just it just you know, it, you could do it, I guess, theoretically, but impossible. But
0: I mean, what makes a good croissant is the same thing that makes. What makes a good baguette? You know, it's it's at its best two three hours out of the oven, and then after that, wait until the next batch comes out of the oven.
1: Yeah. Um, Do you have uh, any experiences with sheeters like breaking in the middle of service?
0: Um, not sheeters breaking in the middle of service, but one of my um. One of my coworkers and I were working an early morning brunt shift, and he had pulled the whole rack of perfectly proof croissants out of the proof box. Um, and it was kind of a, a metro rack sort of situation, but that also slides directly into the combi oven. So you would just pull it out of the proof box and slide it directly into yeah. the oven. And as he was rolling it across the floor, hit, hit a drain or something in the floor, the wheel fell, the whole Service's day's worth of perfectly proof croissants two hours before service fell on the floor, smashed into like a a flat plop of dough. Uh, And somehow we were able to we were able to make the croissants, which should have taken a good six hours start to finish. Uh, we had them on the table half an hour into service, so we yeah totally totally <laughs> did it from scratch and made it happen. It's I'm so, not really sure
1: how <laughs> you, you you made it work. It, it's definitely relevant uh, to doing food editorial because certainly you make things work when like stories don't come in the way you want them to, or somebody doesn't bails, or like a photo doesn't work out. And let's just talk about the the transition from full time professional restaurant chef to working in food editorial. What did you bring to the table when you were doing those 2 days at Food 52 and 2 days at Savour eventually more and more? What 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 did you sharpen as a professional cook that like could lead you to be a leader in food editorial?
0: Well, I think really being coming from baking and pastry made me a lot more focused on process and details and measurements and I think that made me a good recipe tester and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of the recipe testers that we've brought in since then the ones that come from baking and pastry are, you know, they definitely stand out, um, be, you know, because if if you come up on the savory side of things, it's a little more cowboy, a little more cavalier. And, <laughs> right. You know, that is certainly not a crit- criticism of that type of cooking, but it, a it's- little
1: bit like five percent <laughs> of criticism.
0: Um. I don't necessarily. No, I <laughs> okay. don't think it's a criticism. I think it's a very different approach to making food, and the the baking and pastry approach kind of sets you up for success in editorial. Um, so I would encourage bakers and pastry chefs who are considering a career in editorial to think about that and be empowered by that knowledge. Um, one of our best best recipe testers right now is a former baker who worked at Seven Stars in Providence, and he's very detailed and good at his job.
1: Mm-hmm fully agree some of our best contributors come from the world of pastry and it's not contributors for pastry recipes but all recipes and really just in general like stories are outlined better mm-hmm. they come in cleaner and really when it comes to the recipes they're just like lack errors that you'd see in in other you know more because it's like almost like a superhuman skill to be able to be a professional pastry cook
0: yeah and measurements are just so much more important in making yes. pastry right and it's it's not the case when you're putting together a pasta on the stove or something like that, or firing off a steak, um, you know, there's a lot more instinct and um, intuition involved in that kind of cooking, mm-hmm. which is very hard to express. So, and I I have, I have, sympathize with chefs that are trying yeah. to write down their recipes because that isn't necessarily how you're thinking when you're cooking.
1: Yeah, but baking is certainly rote. And I think, like, P. Cheong is one example. He used to write a column for me and, and really, you know, in his busy schedule could just, like, fire off these, like, columns. And it was like, wow, man, you just, like, ripped it. Like... Came in clean and, and was really interesting. Zola Gregory, one of our young contributors, who write, who's going to be writing a column for us, she uh, comes in the world of pastry as well, and I just think it's cool. Like there's definitely like a, a comparison, as you say. Um, let's talk about your, you know, your vision going forward for Savoir. I feel like I'd like to hear what do you, what do you value most in a food story.
0: That's a really Great. Hard question. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I think that there is no one format for what makes a good food story, but I I think a fresh perspective, um, you know, one that avoids all of the culinary cliches, um, one that prompts you to look at a food that you might not have thought of in a new way that prompts you to appreciate something that you might have taken for granted. And that's those are the stories that I'm looking for.
1: So things we take for granted and showing a new lens or light on on things. What is an example of of something you've been working on with your team recently that, that did that?
0: Not not to open up the door to scoop us or something, but I'm working on an ice cream sandwich matrix story right now. And I you know I think that I think we take ice cream sandwiches for granted. And I think there's a lot of room for experimentation and play in there. And I'm excited to um, to look at what an ice cream sandwich can be from a lot of different directions and provide inspiration for people to be able to do the same thing.
1: I love that. So no scoops here. <laughs> safe zone. Um, ice cream sandwiches. What like are we talking about like non-traditional uh, a, a, a non-traditional like not the, the bread of the sandwich. Are you talking about that? Or are you talking about ways the ice cream is shaped in a sandwich?
0: All of the above, the components, the inside, the outside, the drizzle, the stuff you roll it in, all of these different pieces um, really provide an opportunity to choose your own adventure. Right. And I think that um, there are so many talented pastry chefs out there and ice cream shops in the United States and beyond that are doing really cool things with different flavors and incorporating ingredients and flavors from cultures that may not have been ice cream cultures before. And that's very exciting. Um, So I want to be able to, to, to play with that a little bit and let other people dig into those sorts of recipes. I always find sandwich recipes in particular kind of weird because it's just put stuff together, right? And I think that it's the components are where it's interesting. It's the bread. It's how you cook the meat. It's what the condiments are. So that's where I like to play. And I like to provide all of those pieces for people so they can do whatever they want with it. And I, I'm approaching ice cream sandwiches in the same way. So I want to be able to provide all of the different components for something um, and let people run with it from there. And maybe you only want to make the ice cream. Maybe you only want to make the cookie or whatever the piece of the puzzle is. Or maybe you want to make all of it and have an ice cream sandwich party and let people let your guests, you know, play and riff and yeah. come up with new combinations.
1: Kat, I love this. It's really smart. And I can't wait to, to read this package when it comes out. Let me ask you, we struggle with this a bit here and and you may have a take like right now when talking about food content online outside of the recipe, which is like, you know, obviously how to make something. It's a very specific format that we all know. But then when you get into that, like middle of home cooking, like how to do something and when it's like in the written form, how do you negotiate that in this world where, where we observe day after day? More and more people are learning to cook from short-form video, typically social, like like reels and TikTok, but also middle-form to long-form in YouTube and also on television. How do you square with that when you're thinking about doing more um, detailed, instructive content?
0: I think there's room for both, right? You know, and I, we are looking at different ways that we're going to reenter a video. We were, used to do it a lot in the old days and got away from it for a while. Um, I think it's really exciting, to be able to learn how to do something in a 30-second clip and then absorb that information. And it's just your skill. It's just second nature at that point. But if you want to learn how to do something that you've never done before and you want to understand what it's supposed to smell like at this stage, what it's supposed to look like and sound like when you're cooking it, I, th- I think that having, having something written down um, is a lot more instructive if you really want to absorb, you know, how to, how to recreate something that somebody else has made. Um, and I think there is room for both, and I think people want both.
1: Fully agree. Thank you. Um, I think it's it's just a struggle to figure out who wants what, and also, of course, cookbooks will always be around. You know, cookbooks are are ultimately that. It's like when you want to actually learn something, you pick up a cookbook and you read it and you learn.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, cookbooks continue to sell. People still want them. I I think there is this sort of um, false message out there that you know the kids don't want print media, the kids don't want recipes, the kids don't want. Books, they don't want magazines. I don't think that's true. I think, you know, the kids want vinyl records. (laughs) You know, there's still a desire for quality print products and publications and the written word um, just because there is a new way of conveying information that people are excited about that I don't necessarily see it as a replacement or an either or scenario.
1: Well you've certainly lined me up to <laughs> talk about cookbooks. We, we obviously are recording this here at Penguin Random House. We uh, work at Crown with 10 Speed Press and Clarkson Potter and many other imprints that, that publish cookbooks and I fully agree that the cookbook is stronger than ever and the kids certainly want cookbooks. It's like such a uh, it, it's a, it's a affordable luxury to buy a cookbook you're buying something for between 30 and 45 to 50 dollars and it's a lot of information that short from video that even online content is not going to give you and certainly i think the kids (laughs) it's funny that you say that it's so true want to pick up books books are selling books are are valuable they they they're they're tactile. They're they're finite, and I think there's definitely um, a tendency to say, "Well, the kids don't want to do this because this is popular." So I fully agree with you. They kind of operate in different worlds.
0: Yeah, and you know, we hear a lot of um, feedback that people don't want ads. They don't want you know ads in inter- interrupting their consumption of content. And it's like, well, you could buy a cookbook. There are no ads in that cookbook, right? Yeah, you know, yeah,
1: yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think cookbooks are definitely that. They're not. You're not going to get the pop up, and and certainly. Um, there's an interesting future with with how we uh, make cookbooks that align with online culture and make them maybe faster, maybe make them more relevant to a different audience. And I think do you guys have a cookbook future for you? So I know you have this archive, which I want to talk about. But do you have a future plan for that?
0: Um, yeah, it's a great question. We actually we have um, we have produced several cookbooks you over sure the years, have. and uh, one of the most recent ones was a re-edition of the Silver New Classics, uh, kind of in the same realm as you know the, the Joy of Cooking or the New York Times Cookbook. It's it's our compendium of thousand or a thousand plus recipes from our uh, pages around over the years, um, and we revisited that. About seven years after the original version, uh, which James Osland and Helen Rosner had worked on, uh, revisited that, um, changed some things out, added some new photos, added a couple new chapters. I worked really closely with Shane Mitchell on overhauling that one and creating a new edition for people. Uh, it's available and out there now, and we're really proud of it. Um, and we're absolutely open to working on new. Call us because we're absolutely open love to it. working on more cookbooks moving forward.
1: Love to call you. Love to work on something with you. i love to collab with you. i love, love taste and sort yeah. to do something together. I think it'd be really exciting. That would be great. So you have recently been geeking out. As you have said, um, looking at the archive of recipes that you own now, that you that is part of Civil legacy, let me ask you, what do you mean by geeking out? It must be so cool to go back and look in this archive going back all these years.
0: Yeah, I mean, on some level, I feel like I won Storage Wars with this acquisition. So when all the boxes started coming in. Yeah, I knew there were hard drives. I knew there were CDs of old photos. All that's going to be important, and we're working on digitizing that so it's easier for us to access. But, you know, I'll open another box, and it'll be film negatives and prints that Christi- uh, that Christopher Hers- Hersheimer shot in – Mid 90s, or I'll open another box and it'll be full of hand-painted illustrations that were commissioned for for early era souffres as well. So there's some amazing stuff in the archives that we're working um, with a couple different people, um, an art librarian, and wow. um, to to preserve properly and make sure that we can access them and that we can use them so other people can see them too. Um, we also have eight thousand some odd recipes on the website. Um, you know, when the website launched in I want to say 2000 and, Mm-hmm. A long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, SEO didn't really exist. And or, you know, maybe it existed, but you know, yeah, people weren't thinking about it. Um, and a lot of those recipes were just kind of copied and pasted out of the print magazine. They're there. You can use them. The recipes are great. They've been tested. But a lot of them don't have their photographs. Um, it, it's hard to find them. Um, and a lot of them don't. Since they were just copied and pasted out of a, out of a story, they don't have the links they're oh, not man. connected back to their original context. And we're all about connecting recipes to their original yeah. context. So taking the time to go back through those, uh, rework them to our most current style guide, reconnect the head notes back to their original source, make sure that things are properly bylined, that you know, that that recipe sources as well as story sources are, are acknowledged in that has been it's a lot of work, but it's really exciting and it's oh this kind gosh. of scavenger hunt project that we're we're working through gradually.
1: Yeah, amazing project. I mean, are you also publishing some of the feature well for? From the '90s into the 2000s, some of the stories that maybe weren't living online,
0: a lot of them are online already. It's just it's it's hard to navigate to them. So yeah. it is allowing us to unearth them and re-promote them, and, and you know that's
1: really. Cool. I, I, what does the archive look like? Like physically, is it in a space that you you say you're going through boxes? Well, where are those boxes and what does it look like?
0: It's in a storage unit in my basement. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, they were. I mean, our former, former parent company, Bonnier, um, they were based in Winter Park, Florida. So a lot of... Um, you know, their creative director was down there for a while, and a lot of the visual archive um, came up from Florida, and then was in recurrent storage unit in New Jersey, and then was really has been shuffled up up and down the East Coast for a while. So the first, the fact that all of this stuff has survived I was and is say, in good condition it's is
1: amazing to hear a that there wasn't like a flood, there wasn't a lost truck, there wasn't a lost box.
0: Oh my God, don't even say flood. <laughs> oh no, I'm so worried about a flood in my basement. But we're. Um, yeah, we're uh, we're in Stytown, so but we're pretty near the river, so I, I do worry about it. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's two big storage units full of paperwork and hard drives and CDs, and then we also have our whole the Savor prop collection is in our Culinary Producers home studio
1: out in Brooklyn. Oh my gosh, these archives are are so valuable and and useful, and I just can't wait to see what you do with the archive. I mean that is like truly what what's exciting about Savor, um. How do you wake up in the morning? What do you feel like when you're? We've got this 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 massive project. Do you do you have excitement? Do you have anxiety? What what do you feel like?
0: All of that. Yeah. I mean, I wake up feeling pretty terrified, and then once I start moving, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to do and um, work through that that to do list of the business side of of you know running a publication at this point and still trying to be involved in edit as much as possible and hmm. spinning all of these different places impossible up. <laughs> to do
1: line edits and run a business. It's impossible. Uh. You are
0: right. It is hard to do it all. I mean, I never make it through the whole list at the end of the day, but you know, we, we, we. Tick through it as much as we can, and I have a really impressive team too that is supporting a lot and has taken on a lot more. Each of them has taken on have taken on a lot more responsibilities mm-hmm. as well after the acquisition. So um, I certainly could not do this by myself.
1: Yeah, and you—you you told me off, Mike. You're you're getting the team together. You're a remote staff. You're all over the world, but you're getting everyone into New York. What what is that agenda going to be like, and where are you guys going to eat?
0: Yeah, great question. I'm very excited about that. We have most of our meals booked, but there are still some. There are still some open spaces. So if you have suggestions (laughs) for a group, I would love them. Um, But we are we're going to have one of our monthly photo shoots next Tuesday. After dinner on Tuesday, we're going to all eat at Cafe Spaghetti out in Brooklyn. Uh, Sal Lombolia and I work together at Lafayette, and he is such a great chef and good dude. So I'm excited to eat there. Um, And then the following day, we're all going to convene in my apartment uh, in Stytown um, we're getting Mala project delivered. Nice. We're going to do some kind of um, workshopping a bunch of different projects that we have in the pipeline, um, and yeah, exciting. That's about it. <laughs>
1: I just I get so excited to hear about new projects and and where you're going to take it. Consider us a huge fan here at Taste and whatever we can do to collab and help you out. Spread the word. Not that you, you need us, but like it's exciting. Food media is hard. It's challenging. Let me ask you about recipes. Um, when you are testing a recipe. Is there a flaw that you're looking for first that, that occur time after time in a recipe?
0: Um, we get recipes from so many different places and people, and I usually go into testing any recipe assuming that it is right, and it is my job to translate that and Amazing. make it clear um, for, uh, you know, for the home reader. Um, you, the, you know, the first things that I, I go in and I look for, are like, well, are, are the measurements all in the same type of unit? If there are multiple components, uh, are you going to have crazy leftovers of one component after you use up the other component? And how can we balance that out and make sure that people aren't overmaking or overbuying ingredients? Um, those are really the, you know, the, the problems that I look for first. I don't really assume that there's going to be something flawed about the actual knowledge behind the recipe.
1: Open-minded. We try. <laughs> I love it. I love that approach. Uh, is, there, is there a certain recipe that you enjoy, you know, testing yourself? Is there, is there like a challenge that you enjoy with testing?
0: Um, I think that this is sort of a testing issue and also a recipe editing issue. Whenever there is any involved shaping technique that needs to be described, um, I think it's very hard and very satisfying when it's done right. Um, so a lot of that ends up being like a bread baking recipe or maybe a pasta shaping recipe or something like that. Or often pastry comes into it. But, but figuring out a way to describe something yeah. that maybe should be a, a TikTok video <laughs> showing how to do it. You know, is there a way to, to explain to some, somebody a, a technique, a, a particular way that you hold your hand, a particular way that you fold a piece of dough? Um, I find figuring out how to do that really, really satisfying.
1: It is such a challenge, and it goes back to my original. And I'm glad you brought up the the TikTok video. Like a small football, for example, when you say something is a small football shape, it's like uh, there's many small footballs. Yeah, out how there.
0: small? Exactly.
1: <laughs> and like when it's in written form and there isn't a diagram or some kind of illustration and sidebar, oh, it's so challenging. So when you crack that code, you're satisfied.
0: Um, I will say my one. Absolute pet peeve, and I whenever I bring in an intern or train train somebody on test, testing recipes or editing recipe, a lemon is not a unit of measure. Um, in very, very, you know, I do not like calling for uh, the juice of one lemon or something like that. That yeah. is not a volume. Nope. Um, go to the grocery store and look at two lemons and make sense of that with with yourself. Yeah. I, I always try to provide as many pieces of information as possible.
1: Let's get into it. Weight versus volumetric for pastry grams versus spoons. How do you negotiate those two things because I feel pastry chef in you is going to want to go one way and
0: yeah, the rest I mean of us if it were go, entirely yeah. up to me everything would be written in grams and yeah. I think a lot of people from the industry feel the same way. Um, I have tried to start integrating more gram measurements on baking and pastry recipes. I feel like when it matters it really matters and I don't mind deviating from the style guide if it's going to help somebody, you know, execute a recipe better. Um, we, you know, for years we we relied on one unit of measure because it was a matter of fitting into print yeah. um, that isn't necessarily a problem if you're presenting a recipe online however, if it's super long and too much information it's going to overwhelm people so we try and find that balance between what's what's what are too many uh, pieces of information and what is gonna just make it more accessible to different people and I <laughs> think that you know um the the King Arthur flower website does a really nice job of having a kind of toggling functions yeah, on cool. functions on there and I'd love to be able to offer that at some point
1: the toggle is great i love those guys and and i feel like only you can can you know determine your destiny and i feel like using grams for pastries is is what everyone should use i mean buying a 12 dollar digital scale is essential if you're going to bake anything in your home kitchen
0: yeah, and I mean you, you dirty less things if you just yeah. put a bowl on a scale and put, throw everything into it. You know, I don't like to have to wash every measuring spoon and cup.
1: There's a thing about the scale, and 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 listeners will know we've we've discussed this many times. But there's a thing about the scale that people they they home cooks feel it's just complicated. That that the, the, the tear button scares people. Like there's going to be some kind of complicated step when, in fact, it's literally one button that does literally one thing.
0: Yeah, I also wonder if if it's a little too uh, associated with diet culture and and being finicky about you know how much of an ingredient you're consuming, and that yeah. it, it takes the fun out of cooking on some level yeah. in that way. I the think.
1: cocaine trade as well. Sure, yeah, pharmaceutical yeah that comes <laughs> into play. I, but I agree that yeah. there's definitely this like stigma about having a scale in your kitchen that might be like a little weird with diet culture. Good point, really good point. I just think listener, just buy that digital scale. Crack open like a Yodem book. Crack open um, a David Lebowitz book where there's definitely very well-tested gram measurements. Check out Savor where there's really well-tested gram measurements. And it's going to make your pastry experience better. That cookie is not going to be cakey. It's going to actually be crispy. And that's because of the gram scale. It's not because of the products. It's not because of you being good or bad. It's like literally you're messing it up by using volumetric.
0: Yeah. And we can explain to somebody a million times how to scoop flour into a measuring cup and level off the top. Half the people in the world are going to do that and the other half are not. And a cup of flour is going to be wildly different amounts of flour from one person to the
1: next. Well, yeah. I mean, our instinct, I think, as people is to put the most possible... Like the highest amount of something into a box. Like yes. when we're packing, it's like having a light packing touch is not our human instinct. It's like we need more, more, more. And that's what screws you up with flower measurements. You pack, pack, pack.
0: Sure. And uh, a measuring cup looks like a scoop right your instinct is yeah. to scoop with the scoop <laughs> so scooping into the scoop and dirty, dirtying another spoon to yeah. do that is not intuitive at all good and point I'm, scooping
1: yeah. into the scoop is essential right because you're going to be packing way too much if you actually scoop with the measuring cup oh my gosh we could, we could talk about that forever why don't you come back and we can actually have a baking episode we talk about that in detail that would be great <laughs> but on this is taste we ask guests about their discerning tastes so to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire Fast and Furious taste check for you. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. The best AM pastry with coffee? Uh,
0: I am a sweets person in the afternoon. In the morning, it's it's sourdough toast and cultured butter.
1: Oh, sick. Love that. The best dessert, period? Uh,
0: this is going to sound very pretentious, but when I was working at Per Se, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the pastry chef at the time, Elwyn Boyles, um, made a marjolin for a while. And I, I don't know, have you ever had a marjolin? No. It's a very classic, old French dessert. And it's layers of hazelnut d'acquoise, chocolate ganache, uh, whipped creme fraiche, and hazelnut buttercream. And of course, they, I mean, they made big sheets of it. And of course, they would cut you know, laser-cut, perfect little strips of this stuff for service. Uh, so there was a ton of trim left over after every single batch. And I, I must have eaten, like, my weight in this this stuff. It was unbelievable.
1: Was the hazelnut cream the best part? It sounds like that to me. It just meat.
0: all comes together yeah, in these yeah. beautiful different textures um, and a lot of layers of really sweet and bitter. Yeah. Perfectly balanced, perfectly
1: delicious. I love this. The best bread, period.
0: I mean, I still crave Lafayette's uh, Pan-O-Levin's. Yeah. Um, but there there is a bakery in Paris called Mamiche that has a uh, muesli miche. Mm. So it's like a, a rye kind of sour rye with lots of dried fruit and nuts and oats in it. And it's absolutely the best bread with cheese.
1: Oh, my God. With cheese is so good. I love that combination. Is it uh, lightly toasted or just the bread sliced?
0: um i just bought a hunk of it they sell it by the whole half or quarter i think and yeah i mean when i was in paris last i tore it apart in my hotel room there was no slicing there was no (laughs) toasting no no, you just
1: ate it the most underrated piece of kitchen equipment
0: plastic bowl scrapers i think i mean i I use them all the time they're great for cleaning up messes i use them instead of spatulas pretty frequently I, I, i probably have like Ten of them floating around in my kitchen. Yeah,
1: keep them on the, on the on your counter. I mean, just keep them there and you'll find reasons yeah. to use it.
0: Whenever you drop an egg on the floor, just scoop that right up. Oh, my gosh. Always happens.
1: Yeah, great for cleanup. That's a, a great point. Like a, a or bench scraper is just great for cleanup. Um, the most overrated piece of kitchen equipment.
0: Mm, I mean, anything with a single use that lives on the counter, probably. Oh, my gosh. <laughs>
1: a single use like like we're talking about like um, a, a, a a lemon juicer.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe the big stand-up lemon juicers. Yeah, I
1: the big guys. People yeah. are
0: very committed to rice cookers. I believe in a rice cooker, but I am never going to put give up space on my tiny New York City counter yeah. for a rice cooker. Uh, ice cream maker, waffle iron, you know, all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. One New York City restaurant that you are, like, super into right now.
0: I love King so much. Um And I mean, I'm excited about Jupiter as well. So Mm -hmm. the same chefs, but King is probably my favorite spot. It's
1: great. Kat, your favorite cookbook of all time? Single single title.
0: One title. Oh my gosh. It changes all the time. Um, I probably need the most inspiration with cooking vegetables. So I always go back to um, Deborah Madison's Vegetarian Cooking for Everybody.
1: A real classic. Definitely agree. Recent cookbook discovery that you've really been impressed with.
0: I'm very excited about Lara Lee's new cookbook, A Splash of Soy. Uh, her first one, Coconut and Sambal, was really great, too. Um, she's uh, Indonesian, has grown up in Australia, lives in London. And the new book really kind of brings in all of those different inv- influences really well. Yeah. Um, and I'm very excited to make several things out of
1: it. A terrific recipe writer. Absolutely, Laura Lee. Your favorite story to work on at Savore. Do you have a single favorite story that you worked on? It could be a recipe development story. It could be a travel story.
0: I'm going to be hard pressed to pick a single story. I will tell you one of the writers I'm most excited about right now um, is Vaughn Stafford Gray. He came to us through a cold pitch about mangoes and uh, he is such a delight to edit. He is hilarious. His writing is detailed and smart and all of his recipes come in in great shape and they always Kill It For Us online on as well. Um, he's primarily writing Jamaican and Caribbean recipe content for us, and they're so popular and so good.
1: Awesome. Von Stafford Gray. Von Stafford Gray. Remember that name. Is there a favorite food media that not, that's not called so that you subscribe to, that you like, that you want to call out?
0: The Taste Podcast.
1: Oh my God, please, no. That was not, that's never <laughs> the intention. Anything, I just like, you have great taste and you you follow the industry. What do you What do you like? What are you reading?
0: I mean, I think the guys at Food & Wine are doing a great job. It's a lot, there are a lot of Severvets over there. Sure. You know, um, I also, I love the food coverage at Bitter Southerner too.
1: Um, last question, your favorite sandwich of all time. What is that?
0: I've been getting the fried chicken sandwiches from Rowdy Rooster at least once a month right now. Um, It's pretty close to my apartment. They recently started delivering as well. Uh, Yeah, they do a great
1: job. It's like, so one to five, what's your spice?
0: oh man when i was younger it would have been a four or five <laughs> but my gut health is not what it once was so i usually kind of linger around two or two or three these it's days
1: m- <laughs> they, t- they don't mess around they don't mess around <laughs> i'm definitely on the two scale and two is like hitting like right at the edge for me I totally agree rowdy rooster sandwiches are so f- so good love that Cat craddock thank you for joining this is taste
0: thanks so much for having me